You know, Art and the worship team just covered my entire message. So all I need to do is review. That's going to be great. Good evening. Good to see everybody. Pastor Mark is in Heath, Texas. He landed just a few hours ago. So let's remember to pray for our brothers and sisters in Heath. And meanwhile, we're sitting here in uh, May. Is this May? And it feels like July, right? July or August, and it's May. I have a question for you. Ooh, I have a question for you. Do you ever think that we are in danger wherever we go? For example, you're driving your car and your sign's going by all the time saying, watch out for bumps, dips, turns, speed limit, stop signs, dead ends. Look out for construction crews, children at play, deer crossing. You go to the grocery store and they say, hey, watch out, sanitize your hands, sanitize your basket, look out for a spill, wet floor over there. And all those signs that say employees only, it's like, don't you even be thinking about coming in here. You go to a drive-thru and you order coffee and it comes and the cup says, warning, warning, hot beverage. Well, I hope so. That's what I ordered. I brought along a few more examples just for fun. Can I have the first one, please, Robert? Here's one. You ever seen this one? Beware of the dog. The cat is not trustworthy either. That's very true in my house. <laughs> I've seen this one when I was on location filming. Yeah, no <laughs> No trespassing, violators will be shot, survivors will be shot again. I, this is a real sign I came across in the Midwest doing car commercials many times. This is a smart one. Warning, if door does not open, do not enter. Okay, that's a good safety tip. This one you have to think about. Caution, hot glass, and it's in Braille. Is that fair? Is, there's gotta be a better way to do that one. Is that fair? One more. Here you go. Roads unsafe when underwater. Good they posted that sign because I could have missed that. The reason we're looking at these is because today in our passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is going to give us one of the most surprising and unusual signs, warnings in the entire Bible. Paul is going to warn you and me that you and I are in danger if we are not rejoicing in the Lord every day. Is that just like a dramatic opening? Is that true? We're in danger if we're not rejoicing? How is that even possible? We're going to see how that's possible in just a few minutes. First, let's pray. Father, first of all, Lord, please bless our dear brothers and sisters in Heath and Pastor Mark, who we love so very much. Just keep them safe. Um, just give them your presence uh, and fill that place in Heath, we pray. And here, Lord, we gather in this gorgeous day that you've given us. But you know... There's so much in our lives, Father, that just screams for our attention so that we turn our attention away from you way too often. So I pray right now we, you would just focus our hearts, focus our minds, our ears on you because you have something important to tell us, and I pray we'd hear it and receive it. And as always, Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. This we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You picked a great day to come to church. Please turn to chapter 3, Philippians. Philippians 3. If you remember last week, Pastor Mark finished chapter 2, and we saw last week that, you know, it's human nature. Human nature says to us, if you want to be happy, make sure you look out for yourself first. Right? That's human nature. 
But we see in God's word the opposite is true. If you want true, lasting happiness, don't look out for yourself, look out for others. Serve others and serve the Lord. Well, today in chapter 3, Paul has much more to say about experiencing how you and I can experience, actually experience every day true and lasting joy. Let's look at the outline uh, for this passage. It's, uh, there's a lot here in these six verses. We're going to start with that warning. Paul's going to give us a warning in verses 1 and 2, and then the truth will be explained, and then by the end, this huge burden is going to be removed from us. Again, you picked a great night to come to church. This is an amazing six verses. Let's read them together. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which comes in the law, found blameless. First observation we need to make right off the bat, we can see Paul is a true preacher. He starts by saying, finally, or in closing. And he goes on for two more chapters, 44 verses. Actually, when Paul says finally, he's making a transition in thought, not a conclusion. The word finally here really means above all, above all things. So he writes, finally, or above all things, my brethren. You know, all through this book of Philippians, we've seen how tenderly Paul addresses his readers. He loves them so much. He calls them my beloved and my brethren. My brethren means my family. Family. Look what God declares about his family in 2 Corinthians 6.18. Look at this wonderful thing that God has said. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Almighty God, creator of everything, is our father. We are his sons and daughters, which makes you and I brothers and sisters. I love being in your family. I love being in God's family with you. Verse 1 of Philippians 3, Finally, my brethren, my family, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Rejoice. What does that word rejoice mean? In the King James Dictionary, the word rejoice means to delight. To delight to experience joy and gladness in a high degree, to be exhilarated. Let's think about that. We rejoice in all kinds of things, don't we? Don't we rejoice in all kinds of things? Don't we rejoice in the people we love? Aren't we delighted in our loved ones, our family, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't we rejoice in that? How about, how about a job well done? Don't we experience a high degree of gladness in doing our best work? How about traveling? How about traveling? Isn't it exhilarating to visit places you've never been or return to a favorite destination? Here's a big one, food. 
Don't we rejoice in certain foods like chocolate? Or for me, anything lemon? How about great music? Wonderful art? How about finding time to take a nap? Isn't that a reason to rejoice? We rejoice at graduations, weddings, births, and any time we get a tax refund. God gives us so many things to delight us. But these things, the joy in these things, come and go. When Paul writes about rejoicing in the Lord, he's talking about joy that comes and stays. Comes and stays. Dallas Willard, my favorite author, has a wonderful definition of the word rejoice. Here it is. Look what he wrote. A lot to think about here. Rejoice means to experience deep contentment, deep joy, and deep confidence in our everyday life with God. So you know what question is coming, don't you? The question is obvious. Are you and I rejoicing in the Lord today? Are you and I rejoicing in the Lord every day? Are we experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in the Lord every day? Or maybe just some days? Or hardly ever? If we're not rejoicing in the Lord, there's basically two key reasons why we're not rejoicing in the Lord. The first reason we're not rejoicing in the Lord is because we don't know the Lord. How can you rejoice in a God you don't know? Second reason we're not rejoicing in the Lord, if we know the Lord, perhaps we're too distracted by our circumstances. So often, we see our problems so much more clearly than we can see our God. And when life is going well, same problem. We tend to forget about God for a while until we think we need him again. Just our daily lives, just our daily lives, the routine of life can make us feel so numb that we're more aware of the rut we're in than the Lord we love. Yet God's word is telling you and me to rejoice in him all the time, no matter what. So here's the next question we're probably asking. What is it? What is it about God that should give us deep contentment, deep joy, and deep confidence in him every day, no matter what's going on, regardless of our circumstances? What is it about God that should cause us to rejoice? Do you know how many reasons there are to rejoice in the Lord? If we were going to just write down some of the reasons, we would fill a book. The book would be called the Bible, where every page gives us reasons to rejoice. But even the Bible doesn't contain every reason because the reasons to rejoice in the Lord is endless. We're going to discover this ourselves when we spend eternity with God and every day we discover a new reason to rejoice forever. I'd like to take just a few minutes together as a family of God and look at some very specific reasons why we can rejoice in the Lord every day no matter what else is going on in our lives. This list is going to come quickly at you. If you have a camera phone, you may want to take pictures or just sit back and just let it just bathe in the goodness of our Lord. Here's the first one. Here's the first reason we can rejoice in the Lord. God is real. God is real. This alone should be enough right here. Everything we read 
about God in this book is true. Every bit of it is true. The great I am is forever present, forever perfect, forever ours. In Jesus, we have eternal life and we can never lose it. If we held on to our salvation ourselves, we'd drop it, we'd fumble it, we'd probably lose it, leave it someplace. But our salvation is in the Lord's hands where he has promised us no one and nothing can ever snatch us out of his hands. So in Jesus, we have eternal life. We can never lose it. <laughs> Here's a reason to rejoice. The creator of everything is our Papa. Almighty God loves you and me so tenderly, so tenderly, he invites us to call him Abba Father, Papa, Daddy. Next. All of our sins are forgiven. My sin, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Next. <laughs> Here's a reason to rejoice. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. When we give our hearts to Jesus, God gives us a helper. That helper just happens to be God's Holy Spirit that comes to live in us as our protector, as our teacher, and as our guide. Here's another one. God is working all things for our good. In Christ, God promises that absolutely everything that we encounter in our lives is something that he is allowing for our good, for our good. The reality of this truth and the comfort of this truth should change our lives. It really should. Next one, please, Robert. <laughs> the Lord is a prayer hearing and prayer answering God. This comes from our faithful prayer team. Do you realize that the Lord himself gives you and me his undivided attention 24-7? He delights. He delights in hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. Nothing, nothing is too big, nothing is too small to bring to Almighty God. We who trust in the Lord will not be disappointed. All the wonderful promises in the Bible are true. And God promises that he will fulfill every single one of them. Another one. Huh. Someday we will see Jesus face to face. You know, one day we won't need our faith anymore. Because we will see Jesus with our eyes. We're going to touch him with our hands. And we're going to hear his voice in our ears forever. Want some more reasons to rejoice in the Lord every day? These will come even quicker. I'll just read them. I won't even comment on them. Go ahead, Robert, please. The Lord is able to supply all of our needs. His loving kindness never ends. His compassions never fail. The Lord sympathizes and saves. He's strong and he guides. He heals and he cleanses. He forgives and he delivers. He defends and he blesses. He sees and he rewards. The Lord's mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is forever. One more. The Lord is indescribable, incomprehensible, and invincible. 
You can't outlive him. And you can't live without him. For all of these reasons, and countless more, Paul tells us to rejoice in this Lord every day, regardless of our circumstances. Can we do that? Can you and I do that? Can we clear away? Can we clear away those things that so badly want to distract us and steal our joy? Can we clear those away and just praise him? Here's the truth about rejoicing. This will be on the screen. Something maybe to write down. If we're not rejoicing in those times, we're not rejoicing. It's because we're not looking at Jesus. All those times when we're, we see no reason to rejoice is because we're not looking at Jesus. When we take our eyes off the Lord, which is so easy to do, we lose our ability to rejoice. We can't rejoice when we're not looking at him. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 3.1, Finally, most importantly, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me. It's no problem for me, and it's a safeguard for you. To write the same things again. What things is Paul talking about? He's talking about everything he's been telling us about joy and rejoicing over and over again in chapters 1 and 2. And he's reminding us yet again. We so badly need to be reminded. To write the same, thing, same things again is no trouble to me, and here it is. It's a safeguard for you. What does he mean by safeguard? This is the key to this passage. A safeguard is something you do to protect someone. A safeguard is something that you do to prevent something bad from happening. The only reason we need a safeguard is because we're in danger. We're in danger if we're not rejoicing in the Lord every day. We're in danger. Okay, come on. How can that actually be dangerous? Isn't rejoicing in the Lord sort of an option? How can it be dangerous for you and me if we're not rejoicing in the Lord every day? You know what? In your heart and in my heart, we know the answer to that question all too well. Why is it dangerous if we're not rejoicing in the Lord? It's dangerous because if we're not finding joy in the Lord, then we're looking for joy in all the places that everyone else looks that doesn't know God. Too many of God's sons and daughters are just as unhappy, just as stressed out as those who don't even know the Lord. Too many base their joy on their circumstances instead of their Savior. Too many look for joy, or maybe just relief, in the temporary pleasures of the world instead of seeking lasting joy in the everlasting God. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Look what C.S. Lewis said about joy. It's really a lot to think about. I sometimes wonder, C.S. Lewis said, whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. We have joy that we want to fulfill and we just keep looking for things to fill it. On the roller coaster of life, we ride up and down on that twisting track of ever-changing circumstances. 
hoping to find joy in things that cannot provide joy for very long. This is not the life God created for you and me. We were not created for the roller coaster. We were created for the Lord. God created us to know him in such a personal way that his joy, his very own joy, becomes our joy. I know there are times when we rejoice with tears of happiness. And there are certainly times when we rejoice. with tears of sorrow or pain. <laughs> but as long, as long as we always keep our eyes on the Lord, we always have a ton of reasons to rejoice. Up until now, Paul's letter has been pretty sunny. <laughs> but here comes thunder and lightning in verse 2, when Paul identifies a big threat to our joy in the Lord. Look at verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Here are three different ways to basically describe false teachers. False teachers hate our freedom in Christ. So they come at us any way they can, every way they can, to try to convince us that faith in Jesus alone is not enough to save us. Let's look at these three descriptions for just a moment, starting with beware of the dogs. Can I have that slide, please, Robert? Paul said, beware of the dogs. <laughs> This is not <laughs> what Paul is talking about. Paul is not a cat person that hates our beloved canines. In Paul's day, wild dogs ran in huge packs in the cities and countrysides. They were uncontrollable and they were vicious. Also in Paul's days, the Jews called Gentiles dogs as a term of contempt. So Paul is turning us around by referring to the Jewish legalists, the Jewish false teachers as dogs, because they were insisting that the Gentiles get circumcised before they could be saved. Is Paul being too harsh, calling false teachers dogs? Matthew 7, 15, let's look what Jesus said about false teachers. Jesus said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. Notice our Lord said they come to us in sheep's clothing, not cheap clothing, sheep's clothing. False teachers dress up real nice because they want to appear harmless, but they're anything but harmless. So Paul not only calls them dogs, he calls them evil workers. Well, what evil do they do? See, if they were lazy, we wouldn't have to worry. But they're busy. They're working. What evil do they do? Do you know what evil they do? They present lies as truth. They present lies as truth. In Paul's day, the evil workers were again saying circumcision is not a sign of salvation. Circumcision is a requirement of salvation. You know, I saw a brochure one time, really nice, beautiful brochure from a church. And on the cover, it said, putting your faith in Jesus is the first step toward salvation. It's not the first step, it's the entire step. But then inside the brochure, they listed things you needed to do to complete your salvation. Like you needed, I think you had to take a course and you needed to be an approved member of their church and other things. So the, the word of God condemns this kind of thinking. They can, the word of God says this is evil. Why is it evil? Here's why it's evil. If we think, if we think we need to do anything any good works, if we think we need to do anything to earn our salvation, it means 
that Jesus' work of redemption is incomplete. If we have to do something, then Jesus' work of redemption on the cross is incomplete. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 together. Ephesians is the book right in front of Philippians. So you can just turn to your left, just a couple of pages. You'll find Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to quickly look at verses 1 to 10. Because here, Paul beautifully explains how salvation and good works go perfectly together in the perfect plan of our perfect God. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Stop right there. You were dead. All of us. All of us were once dead in our sins. I think you'll agree with this. When you're dead, you're done. When you're dead, there is no more hope. All of us would be hopelessly lost, hopelessly dead, except for the next two words in verse 4, which are the best two words in the entire world. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I know we all know that passage, but I never cease to be amazed at that passage. With more love and more power than we can all possibly imagine, God did for us what is impossible for us to do for ourselves. God brought us back to life. How did he do that? God sent his son Jesus to die in our place. When Jesus died and rose again, he defeated sin and death completely, completely and forever. It's God. It's God who does all the work of salvation. Salvation cannot be earned. Salvation can only be received as a gift from God. It's the only way we get salvation. We can't earn it. It's a gift. How do we receive that gift of salvation? How do we receive that? Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. We receive salvation by putting our faith in the work Jesus did, not in any work that we can do. So where does good works come into play? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. I'm going to come back to that word workmanship. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Do you know what this word workmanship means? It's fantastic. Fantastic. I'm pausing just so you can wait because it's so good you won't be disappointed. Workmanship means masterpiece. In fact, it means completed masterpiece. The moment you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, you and I became God's completed masterpiece of salvation. Remember Jesus on the cross just before he died? What did he say? Did he say, well, my part's done? He said, it is finished. Our salvation is complete in Christ the instant we trust in him. As we grow in Christ, as our faith grows and our knowledge grows, we don't become more saved than we were before. We become, become more blessed. Hopefully we become more joyful. 
but our salvation is 100% complete the instant we trust in the Lord. God's purpose in saving us wasn't just to rescue us from hell. God wants to show his love and goodness to the world through us, through the good works he gives us to do. So here's a slide that will come on the screen, kind of a summary statement to all this. Good works do not produce salvation. Good works are the product, product, the result of salvation. So let's go back to Philippians 3.2 one more time to read Paul's warning because he's got one more group of people to talk about that are trying to uh, convince us that the truth we just read about Jesus is untrue. Beware of the dogs, they attack. Beware of the evil workers, they lie. And beware of the false circumcision. The false teachers were insisting that circumcision is a requirement for salvation. So Paul calls these teachers the false circumcision. In fact, the word Paul uses for circum circumcision here means to mutilate. It's butchery. Paul is saying if you get circumcised for the wrong reasons, it's not circumcision. It's butchery. In other words, anything, anything you and I try to do to earn our salvation is revolting in the eyes of God. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, without faith it's impossible. It's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The only way to come to God, the only way to come to God is on his terms, not ours. In stark contrast to the false, false circumcision, Paul identifies three characteristics of the true circumcision. Let's look at that in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence whatsoever, I added whatsoever, no confidence in the flesh. True circumcision is not a matter of the skin. It's a matter of the heart. It's always been that way. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, says it beautifully. I'm going to read to you, actually out of the New Living Translation, but this is fine. You can look at this. It says, for you are, you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praises from God, not from people. In the Old Testament, the Jews were circumcised as an outward sign of their inward commitment to God. Just like you and I today, we get baptized as an outward sign of our inward commitment to Jesus. These are acts. These are acts of obedience because of God's love, not a requirement to earn God's love. So the true circumcision, they, they worship in the Spirit of God. What does it mean to worship in the Spirit of God? It means we love the Lord the way He deserves to be loved. Not just with outward actions, but with total, total, complete inward devotion. Look what Jesus said on, in Matthew 22, 37. You know this passage. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart 
<laughs> with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. The purpose of worship, and this includes our service, is never to get God's attention. It's always to give God our attention. The true circumcision, the second thing, is the glory in Christ Jesus. This means we do everything. We do everything for Jesus because you know what we know? We know we can't do anything without him. So we do everything for Jesus because we can do nothing without him. John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do. We either believe that or we don't. <laughs> and believing that is the greatest freedom in the world. We can do nothing. And finally, true circumcision puts no confidence in the flesh. Flesh means ourselves. We put no confidence in ourselves to be good enough, spiritual enough, religious enough to earn salvation. Now to prove this point, <laughs> Paul offers himself as a stunning example of what he's talking about. Look at verse 4. He says, Paul writes, if anyone else, if anyone on earth has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul is saying if anyone deserves, if anyone deserves salvation by their works, Paul would be the guy because Paul has far more qualifications than any legalist on earth. Let's look at Paul's resume, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses. He wasn't a convert circumcised later in life. No, he was born and dedicated as a Jew from birth. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So what? So this. Benjamin made Paul a Jewish all-star. The tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king, Saul. The tribe of Benjamin is the only tribe that stayed with Judah when wicked Israel, the other ten tribes, split off to become a separate nation that did not follow God. And Jerusalem and the Holy Temple are located inside the land given to Benjamin. So Paul says he's also a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning there's no mixture of foreign blood in his family tree. And in Paul's day, many Jews were adopting Greek culture and language. They were called Hellenists, <laughs> not Paul. He was raised to love and embrace everything about being Jewish, Hebrew heritage. But you know what? These are just warm-up credentials. Now Paul brings out the big guns. Look, Paul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a legalist on steroids. Pharisees were experts in every single detail of the law of Moses. Pharisees were the elite members of the Jewish society. The word Pharisee, the name Pharisee, means the separated ones. Paul was a separated one. Paul writes as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. To the Jew, zeal. Zeal was the highest virtue of religion because zeal combined two things, love and hate. Before Paul met Jesus, Paul loved Judaism and hated any threat to his religion, so Paul zealously had persecuted the new Christian church. Paul writes as to righteousness, self-righteousness, which is in the law. Paul says he was found blameless. He was blameless because Paul was the perfect legalist. 
He was the poster boy of self-righteousness. He was flawless in the eyes of his fellow Jews. But here's what Paul is saying. We have to understand this. Being found blameless in the eyes of others is worthless when we are guilty in the eyes of God. So what if everybody thinks we're blameless? When we're guilty in the eyes of God, that's what matters. The Word of God declares that no one, no one, not even Paul, certainly not me, and not you, can earn our salvation. Do you realize why that is such fantastic news for us? It's fantastic because we're free from that terrible burden of, oh gosh, are we good enough? Or, am I working hard enough? Or how do we earn our way to heaven? We don't have to earn our way to heaven because Jesus paid our way in full. None of us can ever be good enough to earn God's love because God is good enough to give us his love. He's good enough to give us his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness and salvation when we trust in Jesus by faith. So do we see now why Paul is telling us to rejoice in the Lord all the time, regardless of our circumstances? Do we see why we need to rejoice as a safeguard for our lives? I'm going to put that up on the screen one more time, just as a reminder. Something to look at this week. See if this changes your week. See how this might impact your week. If every time you start to feel anything but joy in the Lord, remember, if you're not rejoicing, it's because you're looking at the wrong thing. You've taken your eyes off of Jesus. We all know how hard this can be to do. Sometimes, sometimes our circumstances make it seem impossible to keep our eyes on the Lord. But God understands this better than we do. So he reminds us again and again in his word to rejoice in him, not because it's easy, but because it's vital. The Lord is our only source of true joy, lasting joy. So finally, my brothers and sisters that I love beyond words, rejoice in the Lord. For me to say the same thing is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for all of us. Our prayer team will be here to pray with you after communion if you would like prayer for anything. Let me close us in prayer. Dear Father, please teach us to be disciples that love you and serve you with everything we have because you deserve nothing less. Help us keep our eyes on you no matter what else happens today and all of our tomorrows. We need you, Jesus. Without you, we can do nothing. We rejoice in you, our Lord, our God. Don't let us take our eyes off of you, we pray. Amen.